You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 60 is Alejandro Escovedo. He is a hero in Austin, where I lived for six years. He started out as a guitarist in punk bands. The nuns that he played with actually opened for the Sex Pistols in their last show. And he moved to Austin, was in a couple different bands. Rank and File was one of them. And you're right now listening to True Believers, a band that also featured John D. Graham and Alejandro's brother Javier. This song, Hard Road, was released on their debut self-titled album in 1986. That band was his first real songwriting project. Didn't last very long, but he's since put out 14 solo albums. Today we're going to start out talking about a co-writing situation. His song Beauty and the Buzz from his 2016 album Burn Something Beautiful was co-written with my past guest Scott McCoy as well as R.E.M.'s Peter Buck. And we're going to turn to Sally Was a Cop from the album Big Station 2012, which was also a co-write with Chuck Prophet. Then turn back to Pissed Off 2AM from the 1996 album With These Hands. And I should say that not too far after that, in 1998, he received the Artist of the Decade Award from No Depression Magazine. For more information, please see AlejandroEscovedo.com. For more information on this podcast, check out NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you enjoy what we're doing, consider a donation at Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. So I will have played a little bit of Hard Road to start us off, and we want to get pretty quickly, to the current album. I know there's a long trip that True Believers was where you started first actually writing music and went through a bunch of, what, it's 14 solo albums now? Something like that, yeah. Burn Something Beautiful, it's the most recent one, 2016. So I just had interviewed Scott McCoy recently, so I kind of know his M.O. Do you want to say something about that project and specifically about Beauty and the Buzz before we play it? You know, I've known both Peter Buck and Scott McCoy since I guess it would be the mid-80s, I was touring with True Believers and Los Lobos. We were touring quite a bit in those days when their records first came out. And we went to Athens, Georgia to play a gig out at the university. And Peter and Michael Stipe came out. I think they all came out, but I really kind of connected with Michael Stipe and Peter both. And I remember going to the 40 Watt later that night and listening to a band called an old band from Boston, I believe they're called the Bird Songs of the Mesozoic, a great band that did almost Eno-esque kind of dissonant rock. They were way ahead of their time. And then Scott I met when he was in the Young Fresh Fellows. And it might have even been on that same tour, but we played in Seattle at the University of Washington. And on the bill was Los Lobos, True Believers, and Young Fresh Fellows. And I remember at the end of the night, Los Lobos wanted everyone on stage to do, I don't know, a 20-minute version of Louie Louie. And everyone played guitar, but nobody even played drums. It was just guitar. And then we hung out at the Edgewater Inn that night, and I fell in love with Scott. And we both have a great love for Mata Hoople's. We just kind of kept tabs on each other over the years. So it was a great treat and a wonderful experience to finally work together in the way that we did. And I think that we made a really great record. I love the record that we made. His MO is pretty much do things very quickly. That's the impression I got when I talked to him, that don't second guess things. Was that the feeling you got? Was that correct? Or was this more meticulous? Everything was very intuitive and instinctual, and we just kind of went for what felt right. And when we got there, there was no messing with it. It's funny, but a lot of the stuff we recorded really were like almost first takes, a lot of them. So it was a great record to make. I love the immediacy of the record. All right, and what about Beauty and the Buzz in particular? Well, Beauty and the Buzz I love very much because Scott brought that to us, to Peter and I, as a song that he had written for Ian McClagan and Ronnie Lane of The Small Faces. And so I knew Ian McClagan very well, living in Austin. In fact, I played the last show with Ian. He and I recorded the version of I'm Not Like Everybody Else by The Kings. And we did it for a benefit record here in Austin. And we had a great recording. We were talking about making other records. And then he left us, you know, and that was quite a blow to the community here in Austin. And I think that the community everywhere, because Ian was loved by everyone. And Ronnie Lane, I, I met in the 90s, and I got to play in his band, Slim Chance, that he had here in, in Austin, you know. And, and Ronnie was a dear friend who I loved very much also. Very similar uh, characters. I miss them both. And so when we started to write Beauty and the Buzz, you know, I had a lot of things that 
Ian used to say to me or that Ronnie would say to me, and we put a lot of that stuff into the song. So it was a wonderful collaboration. For a clue, saw it on your face. Found another world in a grain of sand. You know, I left so long before I planned. And the answer lies where it always does. Never be alone The romance never ends Just an April fool Running one month late You know the joke's on me And the laughter fades And the answer lies Where it always does The truth will fall out of my mind's eye. Rain like jet debris down from the sky. Am I guessing right that the dual lead guitar that you're in the left side doing the intro solo and Peter is in the right filling in the things in the verses? Oh, no, that's uh, Peter and Kurt Block. Oh, yes. Three lead guitarists (laughs) in this band. Okay. So who's taking the initial and the middle solo there? Uh, That would be Peter, I think, in the intro. Okay. And the outro. So, yeah, say a little about what exactly did Scott bring to you? Are any of the original lyrics that he brought surviving, or is it more or less the chord progression? And Yeah, some of them are, absolutely. The way we worked was that Scott would bring this song. He goes, I have an idea for this song. It might have been finished or partially finished. I can't remember exactly, but immediately we knew it was a great song. So they always allow me when I write with them to go home and write the lyrics, to play with the lyrics in any way that I want. 
you know, in order to make it kind of my story. So they allowed me to go home and I added some lyrics and every time we got together, we'd run through the song again. And even while I was in, in Texas and Scott was uh, either on the road or in Portland, he would send me uh, variations of other ideas that we had. If I sent him something, it might spark something in return. So it was a true collaboration. It was amazing how we worked together. And we've already started writing again for another record. So I heard you on another interview talking about how you write songs to be kind of like mini-movies. I try to make them as visual as I can. I've always believed that within a song, you have the opportunity to create a mini-movie, you know, so to speak. You know, I've tried to make albums that way where a theme would run through the whole album connecting the record uh, or a concept might, an idea with that a thread that runs through the record would connect all the songs together. With writing, I think it's important to be able to see and here, so you have the opportunity with a song, whether it be a three-minute song or an opus of some sort, that you uh, can create a soundtrack to these words, you know. And hopefully the words are descriptive enough that you can see them or feel them, and then uh, the music lends itself to that narration. I've always believed in that, and I've always tried to do that from the very first song I ever wrote. Well, it's interesting to see how that translates into how literal how specifically imagistic it's supposed to be, because this reads a little more abstractly, you know, certainly than a song like Wave or something that, you know, has an explicit story attached to it, that, as you said, if these are things, some of these are quotes from what Ian and other folks were saying to you, and, you know, this kind of just musing on, it sounds like a very world-weary sort of song, you know, so it's more presenting that emotion in a traditional song way as opposed to describing very specifically a visual scene that then you should picture. Yeah, and I think in this case, because when you get into the very first verse, which is sitting on a fence, a big fence between time and space, looking for a clue, I saw it on your face. And all of that stuff was kind of stuff that comes from some of the songs that the Small Faces wrote also. I guess it seems a little more abstract, but it's actually quite literal when you get down to it if you know the clues yes yes i have to review the my small faces catalog it's been a while since i've uh, (laughs) listened to them and then the musical structure here you've got a very mid-tempo slow major chord rock the tonic where you're sitting here on the verses the chorus is usually the place where things are supposed to open up and it does in a way that we've got the nice I assume Peter doing the 12-string plucking there. But then we've also got just the whole thing quarterly. It turns minor. It's got this whole chromatic, very Beatles-y soundy, very Lennon, you know, glass onion kind of era thing just to get into that chorus. And then the chorus itself, you know, until you get to the word buzz, there's no relief there. And even when you get to buzz, it's a minor key. So it's really not until the chorus is, is done that you get back to the, okay, now we can relax and we're back to the, the thing that was the main riff and the verse. That part of it, I would give more credit to Peter and Scott as far as that kind of thing is concerned. I got to be honest, like for me, my whole songwriting thing comes from people like John Cale and the Velvet Underground, very much so the Stooges, you know, where I take very minimal and simple chord structure and the words kind of meant more than the music in a way. Not more, but, you know, I don't think it was until I wrote songs, like, I don't know if you've ever heard a song called, of mine called I Died a Little Today, which was on a record called Boxing Mirror. Yes, I love that album, Boxing Mirror. Yeah, that I kind of like played around with more chord structure and melody than than I had in the past. But I'm one of those guys who can sit with a couple chords and and be quite happy. I just like letting the uh, words kind of spill out against a very simple backdrop. Well, that's probably what attracted me to this song in particular, because it had the little tricky bit in there, whereas a lot of this record is very straightforward rock and roll unapologetically, which I just talked to Scott about, you know, how to craft the perfect pop song. So I didn't want to have that exact conversation with you. Scott would be the one that you would ask about the perfect pop song, not me. You know, I'm not that guy. There are plenty of things on here. The opening track for One Horizontal definitely falls into that category for me, that there's just, you couldn't add a note. Whereas this one, when you're going to the chorus, it's got that left turn. There's something weird going on there. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and I give all due credit to Scott and Pete for those kind of things. I know you've talked a little bit about, 
in other interviews your singing style a little bit where that came from. It's always been very hard for me to place. You know, it's definitely coming from a punk place or a country place, and that it's you know it's not like there's heaps of vibrato and things, but you have like the tears will fall out of my mind's eye and the way you kind of spin the eye there. Is that just kind of you just gradually worked up the places where your vocals would deviate from being entirely straight and minimalist? A good producer will kind of unearth things inside you that you didn't even know existed. You know, I think a lot of times I've always been kind of labeled. I've had producers that, you know, in the beginning, really didn't pay that much attention to vocals or teaching me about vocals or having me kind of try things on my own. So I kind of lived with this kind of idea that Lou Reed was my favorite vocalist in a way. And so there's little things that you get from different producers in it. With Scott and Pete, because the melodies, as you mentioned, and the chord structures are so interesting in a pop kind of way that it allowed me to do more things with my voice. And I think that's just a small kind of sample of of where our songs are going and the direction they're headed. And then... I think on all the songs we're going to hear today, we've got female backing vocals doing oohs and ahs or something. But this particular offbeat thing that they're doing in the chorus there is just awesome. Can you say where that came in the process? Was that a very last-minute addition, or was that right there from the start? I'd say that happened in the studio when Corinne and Kelly, once we heard what they were doing on the songs, we took advantage of their presence, of course, and tried to come up with as many ideas as we could for different things. But the producers, once again, I give credit to the producers for that. All right. Well, let's throw out the second song to see a different production environment. This is Sally Was a Cop from Big Station 2012. So Tony Visconti, famed producer from mostly his stuff with Bowie, also a different co-writer, Chuck Prophet, another guy who I'm going to be talking to. You want to say something about that project and about that song in particular? Sally Was a Cop is really an answer to the Mexico that Chuck and I saw when we went down to Baja, California to write. And it was just an idea about what it was like living in those communities, especially with the onslaught of the presence of the cartel and the damage that they had created, not only physically, but spiritually and psychologically throughout the country. And so the story, as I see it, is really about a young girl that loves her community very much, but is forced into the position of protecting it now because of what's happening, the horrific things that are happening around her. And so it's really about Mexico, that song. It's really about what we saw when we went down there. And I love that song. I still play it, and I have a hard time not playing it because... I put it into every set. I just think it's a very, especially now in these times, I think it's a song that needs to be sung. Well, and this arrangement in particular, I've also heard you do a recent acoustic version of it, so it's great that that can translate. But this one is so, the drums are so central to it, or the drum machine, I should say. This is the most fun song about drug murders that I've ever heard. That's actually not a drum machine. That's our drummer, Chris Searles. He's just that, the proper effects on his hi-hat to make it have that really weird, weird sound. Because, you know, we did that at Jim Eno's studio, uh, who's in the drummer for Spoon, you know? Mm. And we were listening to his drumming quite a bit, to Eno's drumming, and loved what the sound that they were getting on their records. I wanted to get something similar. In fact, the whole concept of Big Station was to make the album a little more rhythmic in a way. I don't know that we got there. I always felt like at that time, maybe I wasn't as focused as I needed to be in order to redirect the sound of the band, you know? And so to me, and this is of no fault of Tony Visconti's, but of mine, that the album was a little spotty for me, you know? I felt like some of the songs we did justice to, and I felt like others I just never really captured in the way that I thought we could. Well, let's play this one.
So yeah, you've got this beautiful guitar intro, which I've seen you do live. You know, it's pretty straightforward, but then you've got an overdubbed guitar or something just to make it extra beautiful. Like it's just the most warm thing that's very weird coming right before this, you know, highly processed drum sound that makes it sound like, I guess, like Spoon, like you're saying. That was the idea to create this beautiful, almost dreamy, kind of like otherworldly kind of sounding stuff behind the drums, which were very, I don't want to use the word dancey, but they were... It's definitely dancey. <laughs> yes, dancey, okay. Let's just, go, let's just call it what it is. It's not disco, it's clave, it's, you know, but <laughs> it's not fast enough to be, but yeah. And, and I was kind of attributing that to the fun of having, but Chuck was just involved in the writing, right? Not in the recording. No, not at all. Okay. I've also just been ODing on his music recently, and he just seems an extremely fun individual, and that kind of comes through in everything that he writes. So I'm reading that into some of these other things as being his influence. But no, no, this is the producer. This is where you were at at the time. Right. This was, what, the third album that you'd written with Chuck, right? Yes. And how did that even happen in the first place? You don't live in the same city? I've known Chuck since basically, like, I think one of the very first gigs he did with Green on Red, I, I was at, you know. And ah. So I've known Chuck for quite a while. And I remember we were touring together, doing a solo shows throughout Midwest, I guess it was. And I remember I told him I had this idea. This album came right after the uh, Boxing Mirror record. And I wanted to write an album that really kind of told the story of how I got into bands and the nuns, you know, and the true believers. And so I had begun writing the record and then found that I really wasn't getting anywhere. It wasn't what I had hoped for. And so 
I remember sitting with Chuck in the parking lot behind a club in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and approaching him, you know, we were driving together, so I had a lot of time to talk about stuff, and and asked him if he would help me. I don't think he'd ever really, well, no, he's done collaborations. Well, the whole latter Green on Red albums, right? All that stuff is co-written. Yeah, so anyway, I asked him if he'd do it, and he, he wanted to do it, and he came out to Texas, and we we started the album. And right away, I think the first song we wrote together was a song called Slow Down, which is the last song on the record. It's a beautiful song. And once we wrote that song together, I felt like we were on to something. And so that began the process of writing the record. And when we wrote Real Animal, you know, we really wrote it as kind of like a movie. We were speaking of cinema earlier, but, you know, we felt like it was going to be a movie. So we had like a little storyboard with chronological map that we would follow and characters that we wanted to speak of. And it was a lot of me just talking about the stories about being in the bands and then Chuck helping me write the lyrics, a lot of the lyrics together. And I feel like that's one of my better albums. I love that album. I love the whole process that we went through in order to write that record. It was great. So that's Real Animal, 2008, and then Street Songs of Love. You continued working with him, 2010. And this is uh, off a big station. Tell me a little about the process from when you're done with the song, as far as you and Chuck working on it, was it pretty much just something that you would be able to play by yourself? Or did you have already in mind what the, oh, you know, the various melodic or, you know, that the clave was going to be doing this kind of thing? Like how much would be mapped out before you even go in the studio and start working with Tony on this? Chuck and I had the songs pretty well mapped out when we went in the studio. A lot of the background vocals and stuff, though, not on that song in particular, but others were a result of Tony's influence on us. We were students, you know, Tony was the master, and we asked him question after question after question. I'm sure he was sick of us by the end of this record, because we wanted to know how he made the Bowie records and the T-Rex records, and we wanted that sound, because we wanted it to sound like the bands that influenced us in order to play rock and roll in the way we do. A lot of it was Tony, you know, but the songs were all chucking on. Sally was a cop, I mean, despite the drum machine sounding thing, I'm just not used to hearing synthesizers on any of your stuff. And when it's on here, it sounds like there's there's probably a pretty narrow range of tones that you would allow to come near your songs. Like most of it's very, you know, you've had a lot of live strings so that when you have then, okay, we're going to have a little fluttery synth part, you know, like you have at the beginning here and then it opens up. It also like sounds like steel drum, like rolling on steel drums when you get in the chorus here. Oh, yeah. And there are a couple songs that, yeah, like Looking for Love on Boxing Mirror, where you it really gets way more synthy than kind of I would expect out of you. I mean, is that usually something coming from the producer? I traveled with the synth player for some of those years there. The idea was to try to bring in a little more. We would sample sound. And I remember we had a song called Everybody Loves Me. And the opening would always be this George Bush speech that was pretty horrible. So we would play that into, you know, using voiceovers, that kind of thing. We just wanted to change it up a bit. And I've always loved Brian Eno, so the synthesizer has never been anything that I strayed away from. I'm certainly not that kind of a writer. I welcome any sounds that help the song become more than the base of it, that helps it grow and blossom. So anything like that is good by me. Eno's a great example of just his taste in synthesizer sounds is just excellent. Like it could be very weird and chunky, but there's something very distinctive and musically appropriate about it that, you know, it might be a very cartoon version of a new instrument, but it's got a distinctive character. I just remember hearing some interview with him talking about various synthesizers like, oh yeah, that one's got about two good sounds on it. Like he's extremely picky. I like that. So that's pretty much where we come from as far as the synthesizer. And, of course, working with John Cale, who produced the boxing era, he really wanted me to explore something I'd never done before. And that's why Looking for Love is a great example of that. John was really into uh, Dr. Dre when I hooked up with Ah. him, you know, as a producer. And we even mix in Dre's studio, you know, so he loves the 808, you know, and so we would use that quite often. That was a really interesting experience because when I wrote the record, I was just coming out of this horrible illness, you know, it was really just kind of starting to walk again, it seemed like. And so when John and I got in the studio together, it was basically just him and I, and I would play him all the ideas and songs that I had 
and he was sitting directly across from me on a piano, and he would accent all the stuff that we were doing. And so a lot of the songs on the boxing mirror are built around kind of a drum machine, my guitar, and piano, and voice. And then he would bring the band in to play it on top of that. So we did it kind of the opposite way that most people record records. So when you get to the point of Big Station, would this be, again, it's kind of mapped out such that you can do your scratch part, get the drummer in first, you know, the normal way of doing things, or was it, again, you're kind of putting down your final take and then filling it in with color? No, Big Station was totally about the band, and especially the drums. We were really working on trying to create a new drum sound. You know, in fact, I played with a drummer for quite a long time, but he wasn't so hip on changing, so Chris became the drummer for that record. Yeah, it does have that very startling difference. I, I'm just recalling, you know, when Peter Gabriel started doing stuff in the early 80s and like, hey, drummer, don't play cymbals, you know, or these kind of radical things to make it sound like a different instrument. You know, it's still filling that function, obviously, though. You know, I can't stand the cymbals. I don't really like cymbals. So I started in the 80s asking my drummer not to bring as many cymbals and not to use as many cymbals. So Drummers are funny, but they claim that it's like asking a guitar player not to put strings on your guitar or something, you know? Well, are there ways of kind of controlling that in terms of, okay, you can have a hi-hat, we need a hi-hat, but make it a really small hi-hat. Pick cymbals that will just not take up as much space. Jim Dickinson, who I worked with in The True Believers, told me that when the Stones recorded, that they would hardly use anything but the hi-hat. And then if there was any cymbal work at all, which you hardly ever hear cymbals on Stone's records, they would overdub them. That's one way to get the separation you want, yeah. And that's why on the Stone's records, you can also hear the acoustic guitars jump out so well, you know? And so I always thought that that was more important than getting cymbals. Sure. And yeah, the acoustics are so important in this song. And then when the horns come in, what a great effect between the, the horns coming in on the second break there and then the end of the song where you've got the horns coming back and extra vocal parts and they're all kind of slightly below where you can hear them clearly and it just becomes this crescendoing wash. It's just an awesome effect. Yeah, that was our great horn players that I worked with, Ephraim Owens and Elias Halsmanger. They're from Austin, Texas. But yeah, we wanted to create the sense of chaos and just kind of anarchy in a way, you know? And I think that we're trying to create the horror that this young girl sees as a result of the cartel. Let's get into the lyrics a little more. I was a little unclear, sort of what the, who is the I? I used to be on top, now I just roll over. But you're talking about the story of this girl, so who's the narrator that's fitting into this? I'm not sure I'm clear. The narrator is Sally. Okay, all right. So it's just going back and forth. It's in quotes. <laughs> yeah, it's always about Sally and her views and her expression, really. And is she getting sucked into murdering or is she murdered at the end i wasn't literally clear again she's not murdered in the end but what's happened is that she's put in the position of defending her community so that's where that comes from because in mexico you know the cartel infiltrates everything right you don't know who's on your side and who's not you know and so the cartel of course uh kind of dominates everything the government the police force you know people who are supposed to protect you are on the payroll so it's pretty horrific. And how evident was this to you as you, you said you were talking about your experience of what you were seeing there? Or was this you're reading the paper there and in terms of observing crooked politicians? Like how transparent is this to people who are living there? Well, I think it's very evident to people who are living there, you know, and the reason we were affected is because the cartel had just set off a bomb outside a little town that we were uh, close to. And that's where we got the story from, really. Jeez. All right. And then really the whole production, there's a lot of very hard panning. So, you know, you've got a horn section, but they're completely in different speakers. It's not like you've got the horn section standing behind you doing their little thing. Like it's, they're coming in much like the processing on the drums that everything is kind of coming from its own place. So it has this otherworldly quality. If I remember that's Tony's mixing there. And he's the one who loved to put, you know, he loves the sonic palette and he loves to experiment. So that was all Tony right there. I'd also heard, again, talking about your singing, another interview where you're talking about how some of the effect, not often detected effect on your singing style comes from music in Mexico or, you know, from Mexico that you'd heard as a kid. Am I hearing that a little more obviously here? You know, another day older, the way you're, it's very staccato delivery. So it doesn't sound 
as much like Lou Reed as some other things that is that not an accident that you're singing about Mexico and it's maybe got a little more of that inflection here? It's funny because I remember growing up, my father was a singer, you know, mm-hmm. and he considered himself a crooner. He'd sing rancheras and ballads, boleros and stuff. And, uh, you know, my father's voice has always been kind of with me. You know, even when he passed away, I hear my father's voice more than I've ever heard. And so I think in singing somehow subliminally or through genetics or whatever, I sometimes try to cop that or emulate that in a way, you know. And the singing style of Mexico is a very passionate singing style. Even when I sang in a more monotone voice, I always tried to put a lot of emotion into it. And so that's always been my thing. Is this toward the top of your range that Sally was? or You're in belting mode, more or less. It's not... Yeah, there's not much of a range, but yeah, that's probably (laughs) the top of it. (laughs) Well, let's throw our third song out there. A very nice late night song, Pissed Off 2 a.m. from your third album, With These Hands, 1996. So this was your third album with Stephen Bruton producing, but the first that you had actual money to work with, that Ryko Disc was funding this. So you got to explore a little bit more sonically. Do you want to say something about that album and that song? Well, that album was a wonderful album to make just because, I, you know, Bruton was one of those extremely special people in my life, you know. And when he left, I miss him every day. I really do. I love Stephen so much. And he's the kind of person that I wish was still around. So, you know, I could talk to him about things. You know, I've lost a lot of my friends and and, you know, it's funny that, you know, as you lose your friends, you lose your sense of uh, kind of your signposts along the way, you know, the people that shared various experiences with you and know you through those experiences and and you can reflect with them or laugh about them or cry about them or whatever it is, you know. And Stephen put so much of himself into the records that I always felt that those shouldn't have had my name, just my name on them. They were really his also, you know, that they were both of our records. And we both discovered a lot of things. Himself as a producer, I think, grew as he made those records with me and myself as a writer and a band leader. I grew immensely through his help and direction. And that song was a song that I wrote about a late night situation in which it's those kind of nights in which, you know, a musician has many of in which you have gone out, you've played, you've come home drunk and still want to party, and people that you live with uh, don't want to party. They've got things to do, or they've got lives, real lives, and they're uh, asleep, and you know, and you sit there in the dark and kind of contemplate things. So it's a song about a guy that's really kind of uh, realizing that maybe he needs to grow out of this situation. Sometimes I come home Don't expect too much The lights are off now It's only two How I wish my breath Didn't hurt so much You'd be up, babe, it's only two It's only two It's only two Why don't you sleep? You look as though you need it All my friends, they laugh They laughed at all my jokes I got one more story It's only two 
How I wish my touch Could erase the past Then you'd be up, baby It's only two It's only two Why don't you drink? You look as though you need one. Look, there are kids and reasons they mean nothing to me. Now they mean nothing to me. Different times, and you'd be up, and we trade stories. It's only two, it's only two, it's only two. Why don't we pretend? It's all we have between us The barricades and reasons They mean nothing to me Now Why don't you sleep You look as though we need it The barricades and reasons They mean nothing to me Now they And when you were writing at this point, was it very, you're sketching a short story, more or less, or is it more confessional, or is it a mix of those things? It's a mix of both of those things. In writing that song in particular, I thought a lot about Raymond Carver. That's the name I was just trying to think of when I said short stories, yes. I love Raymond Carver. I read almost everything he's ever written, and his kind of stories had a huge influence on me. And so that in particular, that song in particular... I think was one where I really tried to create something like that. And so, you know, sometimes I come home, I don't expect too much. The lights are off, it's only two, you know. How I wish my breath didn't hurt so much. It's that kind of thing where this guy comes home and just kind of finds himself in this really kind of pathetic situation in a way and realizes that his life has to change. We'll say more about how your writing worked at this time. As you said, you're the sole songwriter on this one. This is the first one we've played here. But on all of your first albums, your early albums, you're listed as the sole songwriter. And even if Stephen is helping when it comes time to arrange, to work out the details, it's a very different process at this point in your writing life than it is now. I'm going to say something that might sound a little strange, but I always felt like at that period of time when I was writing songs of my own, and really kind of trying to tell this story, you know, that I was a much better writer in a way. I felt that the songs really kind of had a lot more honesty. They had less fear in that they were just complete and utter honest portraits of where I was at that time. I remember having a relative who I hadn't seen in a long, long time, and she told me that she took my first three records and sat down with a bottle of wine, turned off all the lights, lit a candle, and listened to all the records. And when I saw her again, she told me that she felt like she had caught up with everything I'd been through since we had seen each other. You know? And that kind of writing is very special, you know, and it's very rare. And when I write with other writers, like writing with Chuck is great. Writing with anyone else is great. And I, I, we've written some beautiful songs, classics, I think, you know. But as me, personally, as a writer... 
I think that was my most honest period. And that's really important as a writer. And it's rare that you can get to that place. I say this because I wasn't trying to be a pop writer. I wasn't trying to be clever. I had no idea what I was trying to be. I almost was running around. The vision was acting itself out through me. And that's a rare place to be. It's a very in-the-moment kind of place to be. And that's beautiful for an artist. Well, and it's kind of great that this worked out. Like, I don't think it's terribly uncommon for the first few albums to be the best, maybe, that somebody came out. Because they are, as you say, they don't really know what they're doing. Yeah, It's not quite as, as craftsmanly as it is later, that there's something raw about it. In my case, those albums were done when I was like 20, and they sound like crap. But you were established enough that you were going through this growth period when you were already in a sonically beautiful environment. So you can, you know, really are capturing this with the great production. That it was, it was good that it happened now and not, you know, during the nuns or something when the recordings would have sounded like garbage by comparison. <laughs> No, you're right. Exactly. And so it came at a very good time. And luckily, I had someone like Stephen Bruton around who guided me through all of that. And he was the best teacher. He was just so beautiful of a person. So that's where it was at with those albums and those those songs. And I feel a real strong connection to them because of that. I feel like I still do a lot of that material and I enjoy singing the songs, you know. Well, this one in particular, I, I was kind of comparing in my head, you know, this came out in 1996. We'd just come from a period of pop music having the Nirvana loud, quiet, loud thing. Yeah. And we have a version of that here. You know, we've got a very nice, peaceful verses. And then, well, it's not like the earth shatters when the chorus comes in, but it's more like the drunken person lying on the floor gets up and stomps around a little bit. Like it's a very, it's a very spirited chorus with a very ro nice Rolling Stones guitar answering the vocal there. Yeah, I wrote Keith Richard guitar is what this was connoting for me. That was very true. And that was something I was experimenting a lot. And you know where I was really trying to do was more about Mata Hoople and Ian Hunter and his writing, you know. That was kind of like, you know, when I started The True Believer with my brother Javier, that was a template for our band was uh, Mata Hoople, you know. And, you know, we loved the dynamics of Mata and the way that Ian was always so literal in his writing. You know, he wrote real stories about people that I could relate to. That was a huge influence for me. Well, just the fact that every single chorus here has this bass slide getting into this, which is the kind of thing you, I'd expect to hear once, but no, no, that's the riff. Like, that's what gets you into the chorus. Yeah. Actually having sha-la-la-la-la, you know, as the backing, connoting these 50s girl groups, I think is great in this context. So much of the rest of it has the kind of Tom Waits piano bar feel, but I don't associate yeah. sha-la-la-la-la with that, doing this kind of classic, almost Latin melody thing. When people ask me about my music, they'll ask you, well, what's your music all about, you know? And I say, well, it really comes from a vast record collection that has everything from Sun Ra and Duke Ellington to the Shirelles and Chiffons, you know? So I love it all, man. Because of my parents and Coming from a musical family, I think that really helped influence my record collection and my taste in music and my acceptance of all forms of music. You know, I just love it all. But again, you're pretty restrained. Like, again, going back to Sally Was a Cop, when you've got the horns and toward the end of the second break, they get to do a little bit of licks, but there's no Sun Ra. And now they're going to just spiral out of control. You know, even the, in that outro to Sally Was a Cop that I mentioned, where you've got the yeah. horns are leaping around a little more in the background vocals. Well, they're still mixed so that it's very much kind of something that's being pressed down. It never just opens up. And I can't think of a place in your catalog where, I mean, of course, you've got a lot of blazing rock songs and the Buick McCain stuff, you know, your love of that kind of over-the-top guitar music. In fact, I remember seeing you doing a Butthole Surfers guitar solo. I was in Austin just during your presentation of the History of Austin Music thing a couple of years ago. The Sounds of Austin, yeah. Yes. So, you know, you've got some unrestrained rock in you, but I very seldom see any kind of Sun Ra, let's let the band <laughs> spiral off into psychedelia for four minutes kind of stuff. It's still very tightly controlled in a certain way. Maybe it's the Lou Reed thing that it has to, actually even Lou Reed, there's some Velvet Underground songs that <laughs> go off and everybody is, has taken way too much drugs tonight. You know, it's, 
Yeah. It's funny, before I made Gravity, I had a group here called the Orchestra, right? And it was a lot of jazz musicians, you know. And the way that a lot of those songs were born, like Gravity Falling Down Again and stuff, were just improvised little riffs. But we would always start out with kind of a Sun Ra noise kind of presentation and then drift into some beautiful arpeggio or whatever, you know. And so there was moments back then that I used to do that. But now it's all a little more controlled than it was, you know. i kind of gotten more into just kind of presenting the song in its barest form. I mean, I just did a tour with Joe Ely and where we swapped stories and songs. And I really had a blast doing that. I really enjoyed that a lot. Well, that seems appropriate to transition to the last song that we're just going to introduce and then play it and then be done here. Velvet Guitar. From A Man Under the Influence 2001, the producer was Chris Stamey on that, and he's another guy I don't associate with excess, particularly. I know that the early DB stuff is a little out of control, frenetic. So Velvet Guitar, this is another one. I would almost think this was a Tony Visconti production, and that you've got so many guitars swirling around here. You know, It's just such a, a rich arrangement, although, it, again, it still stays under some nice control. Yeah. A lot of the guitars that you hear... First of all, Velvet Guitar had Eric Haywood on guitar. It had Mitch Easter, I think, put a track on it. I put a feed, my, all that feedback track is mine. And then Joe Eddie Hines, who was a dear friend, he just passed away. But he was such a great guitar player, and he was in my touring band at that time. He added some really killer guitar on that, and he would always just tear it up when we when we would play that song, you know. That song is really about, the title is ripped off from Hank Garland, you know, Hank Garland album called Velvet Guitar. But it's really a bit just about love for the guitar, you know, and, and being in a hotel room and just kind of being there with your guitar. I've always loved that. That song really was just about the guitar, but it has a few other little things in it that makes it kind of interesting, I think. I saw that you recently just performed this entire album in a row, that you retain a lot of affection for this era. You know, that's probably one of my favorite albums. It was a good time. We were really on a creative peak. We were really starting to elevate as far as popularity, and the association with Bloodshot helped very much. And I don't know, it was just a great time, and I really love that period of time, and I always go back when I need inspiration. And that's still all songs just written by you. Did you still feel like you were still in the honest confessional figuring things out period, or was this a little more established that you've you've kind of figured out the shtick by now? Well, you know, I was getting a lot more recognition for being a songwriter and stuff, learning a lot more about myself and life and being in bands. And I think with us at that time, that band toured constantly. We played a lot of shows together. And so that album is really a dedication to that band and those people that were involved with me at that time. It's kind of like our story. And I plan on doing the album again, hopefully soon with in its entirety, but have Chris Damey kind of do uh, what he did for the Big Star Records. He'll conduct uh, maybe a, a mini string section or something like that. We'll, we'll do it as pure as we can to the recordings. Well, that's good to do when the artist is still alive. Yes, well, yeah. I would be very happy to hear that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time here. Well, I appreciate your time, and thank you very much for checking the songs out and studying them in the way you did. It was a great interview, and I, I really appreciate it very much. Thank you. All right, here's Velvet Guitar. My hands are turning numb but I still gotta strum my velvet guitar And I don't care how long Might write a sad one But who's gonna sing them this time? My hands are turning numb but I still wanna strum my velvet guitar. And I don't care how long, exactly what went wrong. But who's gonna blame him this time? Not gonna break him down. Oh, 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 
Thanks again to Alejandro. It's always a pleasure to revisit the towering figures from my time in Austin. As I mentioned, I'm supposed to talk to Chuck Prophet, Alejandro's co-writer on three albums. And as we mentioned, Alejandro is connected to a number of my other idols. Chris Stamey produced the last song. John Cale from the Velvet Underground I'd love to talk to. Tony Visconti. And I should say Alejandro has also done duets with both Willie Nelson and Bruce Springsteen. So the man is respected. The man is connected. If you've never actually heard a whole album of his... Go look to AlejandroEscovedo.com. I think The Boxing Mirror is a very good album to start with. Hey, I hope you liked this interview as much as I did. And you want to hear more by going to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. If you use iTunes, I could really use a rating or review from you on the iTunes store for me. And the best way to show your support is to go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. Sign up for a small donation. Hey, next time, Richard X. Heyman will be my guest. Looking ahead, I just interviewed for episode 65, Patik Kuhad, who is MTV India's Artist of the Year last year. And there's a lot of cool stuff in between. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.